Gym sessions and sweaty summer activities are back, which means more funky smells in your clothes because sweat leaves behind bacteria that causes those hard-to-remove odors. Clorox Fabric Sanitizer products are ready to zap the stink out of fabrics in your home by getting rid of 99.9% of odor-causing bacteria. Eliminate odors in every load or sanitize fabrics between washes with one of our Fabric Sanitizer products. Search Fabric Sanitizer at Clorox.com to learn more. When it counts, trust Clorox. Use as directed. Across the country, hate crimes are on the rise by more than 25% in the last five years. The good news is there's something you can do about it right here in your community. If you witness or experience a hate crime, you're not alone. And the FBI is here to help and commit it to justice. Report hate crimes at 1-800-CALL-FBI or tips.fbi.gov. Protecting our communities together. Report hate crimes. Chaque jour, avec nos salons un peu plus simples, mais le passé, même les parties classiques de ces récits, continuent de devenir plus lumineux. Now I've wanted to tell the story of the Quebec October crisis. For Canadians, this will seem like an old familiar trope, yet the story of how a ragtag band of separatists, some would say terrorists, kidnapped two government officials and murdered one of them, some would say killed accidentally, provides deep cultural context into the Quebec and Canadian psyche. Technically speaking, the October crisis lasted just under 12 weeks, but the waters of Quebec descent had been boiling for decades, with resentments and bickering continuing to this very day. It's a big story, and I'm going to uh, fail many of you in my telling of it. For some, it will lack nuance and political understanding. For others, the endless Canadian and Quebecois navel-gazing will become tedious and snoozeworthy. Some might say, uh, more cultural context? Oi, oi, this may be folly, a fool's errand. What a pitch, right? Through nearly three decades of this tale of Canadian and Quebec identity politics, there remained one constant. Jean Drapeau had been mayor of Montreal from 1954 to 1957. Then again from 1960 to 1986, Think of him as a kinder, gentler Richard Daly or Fiorello uh, LaGuardia. The Drapeau administration oversaw some of Montreal's greatest accomplishments. The construction of the city's metro mass transit system. The creation of a world-class performing arts center, Place des Arts. And the hosting of the 1967 World's Fair, Expo 67 rising out of the waters of the St. Lawrence River on two man-made islands 
the foundation provided by the Metro construction diggings. In 1969, Drapeau was instrumental in securing a Major League Baseball franchise in the city, the Montreal Expos. Then later, in 1976, he convinced the International Olympic Committee to host the Summer Games in Montreal. Our destination is the October Crisis. Getting there, we will need to navigate across all these milestones through the lens of Mayor Jean Drapeau. This is who killed Teresa. Connaissez-vous mes bonnes marronnes? Il faut la voir avaler son macaroni. Chaque soir je l'évite pour aller danser. When I was a boy, growing up in a small village in Quebec, two events were mandatory. The mass on Sunday and the Saturday night hockey game. Part one. Origin story. The Richard Riot. Midway through the magazine's fifth anniversary, Montreal Canadiens hockey legend Maurice Richard finally appeared on the cover of Sports Illustrated. By March 1960, he was already a hockey legend, first player in history to score 50 goals in one season, the first to amass 500 career goals. Richard led his team to winning eight Stanley Cups and was within weeks of capturing his ninth. Those last five Cups were all back-to-back, five Cups in a row. That feat has never been repeated to this day. Richard retired that year. Along with Gordie Howe and Bobby Orr, he is considered one of the greatest hockey players of all time, maybe one of the greatest athletes, period. His name mentioned alongside Hank Aaron and Johnny Unitas. But something happened earlier in Richard's career that may mean more to the Quebec people than all those great achievements. And we use a kind of hair glue to keep it in place. We laced our skates like Maurice Richard. We taped our sticks like Maurice Richard. We cut his picture out of all the newspaper and we knew everything there was to know. March 17th, 1955. Keep that date in mind. Hockey, the fastest game on earth. A story about a sport where rhubarbs and riots are part of the rules. In fact, Credit here to CBC News's Kate McKenna, who recently ran an article on the Richard riot. The event that occurred at the Montreal Forum on Thursday, March 17, 1955, came to be known as the Richard riot, but it had its origins in Boston four days earlier. Opposing players had long tried to slow down the speedy Richard through intimidation and force. In the match, the Boston Bruins' Hal Lavko struck Richard in the head with his stick. Richard retaliated with an ugly slash to Lavko and then punched referee Cliff Thompson in the head when the officiating linesman attempted to intervene. In the aftermath, after two days of deliberating, 
Hockey president Clarence Campbell suspended Richard, who had been leading the NHL scoring race at the time, for the remainder of the regular season and the playoffs. In English Canada, Campbell's actions were praised. Many felt it was high time the fiery and erratic Richard should be tempered. In French Quebec, Campbell's decision was viewed as an injustice. Too high a price imposed on their francophone idol by dominant and overbearing Anglophones. There had also been a history of personal bad blood between Campbell and Richard. Maurice Richard penned a weekly column in the Quebec newspaper, Samedi Dimanche, where he often criticized the inequality between English and French hockey players. What did Campbell do when Jean Beliveau was deliberately injured twice by Bill Mozinko of Chicago and Jack Evans of the Rangers? No penalty, no fine, no suspension. Did he suspend Gordy Howe of Detroit when he almost knocked out Dollar Saint Laurent's eye? No. Strange that only Dick Irvin and I have the courage to risk our livelihood by defending our rights against such a dictator. For this, Campbell fined Richard a thousand dollars and forced him to abandon writing for the Quebec Weekly. Campbell received death threats. He was twice urged by the police not to attend the following game in Montreal. Campbell was defiant. On St. Patrick's Day, Thursday, March 17th, he took his regular seat at the Montreal Forum. The Detroit Red Wings and Montreal Canadiens played through 10 minutes when finally a fan smeared Campbell's face with a tomato. Next, garbage rained down from the cheap seats and someone set off a homemade tear gas bomb. Fleeing from the eye-burning smoke, 20,000 fans spilled into the streets along St. Catherine and Atwater. The riot had commenced. Cars were overturned, shop windows smashed, scores were arrested. The reaction of the fan was a very gut-feeling reaction, very emotional feeling. They've touched our hero, they've touched Richard. You knew something was going to happen, but you didn't know what. And uh, he, he should, Campbell should not have been at the game. And if he had not been at the game, we would have had no riot. That's Red Story, a former NHL linesman who refed the game that night. Story once said, in Quebec, hockey was bigger than the church, and Rocket Richard was bigger than the Pope. The following day, in a role that would become familiar to him in the coming years, Mayor Jean Drapeau played the part of reconciliator, trying to calm the city, but he had strong words for Clarence Campbell. It would have been wiser for Mr. Campbell to have refrained from going to the forum, and especially from announcing his intention in advance. His presence could, in effect, be accepted as an act of defiance. It is true that during the first ten minutes of play, everything went well, he wrote, and it was only when Campbell took his seat accompanied by his secretary, that things began to develop in a regrettable manner. Drapeau, too, had tried to persuade Campbell to stay home that night, 
The mayor understood that Canadian fans were on edge following Richard's suspension. I was justified in trusting that people would give evidence of their feelings in an orderly manner. As a matter of fact, it was only on provocation of Mr. Clarence Campbell's presence that protests assumed a different tone. Drepo finished his statement by saying he would be staying home from the next Habs game, and he implored Campbell to do the same. Where does the puck, the puck that scored hockey's first 500th goal sit? I mean, if you kept all your souvenir pucks in one room, you'd have to move out, wouldn't you? But where is that one? Richard didn't win the scoring title that year, and the Canadians lost the hockey championship to the Detroit Red Wings in seven games. I didn't keep all the pucks that I scored with. Uh, I remember the 500 goal, the one that I scored with. I think Mr. Selkie and I, we, we had a frame and a plate of goal, and we sent it to the Queen. And I think uh, it's, it's over in, in England somewhere. <laughs> I hope so, anyway. Now, listen, I love Her Majesty, right? <laughs> I'm in all in favor of the Commonwealth. You don't take that puck and send it to the Queen. <laughs> there are three events that every Montrealer swears they were at. And they are like the Richard Riot, the Pink Floyd Animals Tour at the Olympic Stadium, and, um, um, well, I don't know, like every freaking time... Uh, Celine Dion played uh, Montreal Forum, something like that. Now, um, as for Pink Floyd, I can um, I can tell you that my my sister Teresa was definitely at that that uh, show. That's the that's the famous show where Roger Waters is trying to play um, the opening of Animals, um, Pigs on the Wing, and uh, a, a fan interrupts him. He won't let him play it. Um, and and Roger Waters spits on the fan, and it, the concert is legendary um, because it uh, supposedly spawned his inspiration to write The Wall, and about a half a million people claim to have been at that concert. Uh, my sister was at that concert, and I have the proof because I recently found a, a 1977 calendar of hers, and it says on um, June 7th, she writes... Pink Floyd tickets went on sale. And then on um, July 6th, which was the date of that concert, it says Pink Floyd, Old Munich for Supper with Andre, Sue, Shady, Chuck, and Pierre. So uh, eat that. Now, as for the Richard uh, riot... My father really was at the forum the night of the Richard riot. Um, the tear gas erupted and he and his friends spilled out onto the street and they retreated to their dorm rooms at Loyola College. My, my father played varsity hockey at the time and he was the starting goalie for both the Loyola Warriors and McGill Redmond. I think he was the MVP. I think he's the only goalie who was the only goalie who was the MVP four years consecutively. And um, uh, my dad would practice at the at the Montreal Forum um, in the early mornings before class. Um, and when the college kids were finished their practice, then the, the Montreal Canadians would come on the ice and practice. Um, and uh, my dad would devotedly skip classes to hang 
hang behind and he'd watch the likes of Jean Beliveau, Butch Bouchard, Jacques Plante, Doug Harvey, Boom Boom, Jeffrey, and yes, even Maurice Richard. Better still, sometimes Richard would step in and referee the games for those college kids. So it must have been uh, quite a thrill, quite a thrill. The, uh, the Richard riot was a pivotal moment in Quebec history. Many consider it an antecedent event that would eventually give rise to a wave of French Quebec nationalism that bloomed into a period of intense socio-political change, ironically known as the Quiet Revolution. Part two, La Révolution Tranquille. Gallons of ink have been spilled explaining the Quiet Revolution. And for our purposes, you only have to understand a couple of things. As the name implies, the Quiet Revolution was a social revolution, much like the Velvet Revolution that would unfold decades later in Czechoslovakia, where the Velvet Revolution took place very quickly The Quiet Revolution evolved over many, many years. As well, the Quiet Revolution did not result in the immediate collapse and transfer of political power. That process would be discussed for decades and is still evolving to this day. With any revolution, there's always a leader to rebel against. And in Quebec's case, that leader was Maurice Duplessis. Premier Duplessis was a social conservative who held virtually uninterrupted power in Quebec for nearly 25 years, from 1936 to 1959. In the words of one documentarian, Duplessis was, quote, an authoritarian defender of the status quo, a Quebec nationalist, and determined friend of private industry who sold Quebec's natural resources to outside interests. Most of these outside interests were English businesses. During the Duplessis reign, French-speaking Quebecers mostly held low-wage, labor-intensive jobs in the farming, mining, manufacturing industries. The professional class occupations, the doctors, lawyers, civil servants, were, for the most part, all filled up with the English. Describing this inequity, the singer Félix Leclerc stated, Our people are the water boys of their own country. If the French had a problem with any of this, they were expected to take their issues to their priest. The Roman Catholic Church controlled Quebec with an iron hand, especially its social and educational institutions. For these reasons, the Duplessis era came to be known as uh, the Grande Noisseur, the Great Darkness. The party slogan of Duplessis' Union Nationale was Le ciel est bleu, l'enfer est rouge, the sky, meaning heaven is blue, 
Hell is red. Red being the opposition liberal party. And here we notice a flip uh, from the uh, political arena in the United States. In Canada, the right is blue and the left is red. And there are further contradictions. Some to this day regard the Duplessis era in Quebec with a great deal of fondness and nostalgia. If nothing else, Duplessis kept the trains running on time. Though the Richard Ride is seen as a flashpoint that ignited the quiet revolution, uh, Maurice Richard himself was a supporter of Duplessis and often campaigned for him. Duplessis died in office in the fall of 1959, which gave rise to the Liberals, the Red, which gave way to social change in the province. There were obvious reforms that came to education and the influence of the Church, with a strong push coming from Vatican II in 1959. So all of these things were converging. There was unionization, then strikes... The miniskirt pot pop music. Quand je l'ai vu, elle marchait seule dans la rue, chantant. There were more profound changes. Questions of identity. What does it mean to be from Quebec? With any revolution, there are always the intellectuals. Media outlets such as Radio Canada, the newspaper Le Devoir, and the political journal Cité Libre became the channels for criticism and promotion of change. Cité Libre had been a created, started by uh, Gérard Pelletier, uh, Jean Marchand, and Pierre Trudeau, Justin Trudeau's father, with the express purpose to cripple the Maurice Duplessis stranglehold on the province. The journal had no money and often operated after hours out of the back of a restaurant. Editorial meetings among the three were often held in Pelletier's kitchen. The journal was anti-clerical and pro-civil liberties. Soon, René Lévesque joined the crowd, but René Lévesque, who would go on to become leader of the Sovereignist Parti Québécois, and Pierre Trudeau, who would become Prime Minister of Canada, often clashed over their values. And to this day, Lévesque and Trudeau are often pitted against each other as rivals, even though they had much in common. They were both Jesuit-educated, both studied law at Quebec universities, uh, René Lévesque at the uh, Université du Laval in Quebec City, and Trudeau at uh, the Université du Montréal. Um, Trudeau, of course, went on to study at Harvard. Uh, Lévesque goes on to become a war correspondent in uh, in Algiers, so already there's there's a class distinction uh, there. But um, I, I think I think a lot of that is um, it's convenient to see them as uh, rivals. There, there's a 
There's a funny story about the two of them, and I'm, I'm going to sort of butcher it. It's from uh, the NFB documentary, The Champions. I can't remember who, who tells it. It might be Peltier um, by Donald Britton. The film is made by Donald Britton. And in it, um, uh, they're talking about how um, these three these three wise men, different wise men, um, they're trying to recruit Levesque um, to write for Cité Libre, um, and and Levesque keeps saying, "Well, you know, I'm I'm too busy. I'm too busy. One must have time." To which Trudeau replies, "And ideas, Rene. One must have ideas." <laughs> I I do uh, I do love that story. Um, anyway, um, as as if tracking these two diverse personalities and big personalities, slowly Quebec's identity uh, becomes divided between Quebec nationalists and sovereigntists such as Lavec and Canadian federalists like Trudeau. Soon a new word emerges to identify French Canadians. Québécois a unique and separate identity from France, Canada, and England. Le bal allait bientôt se terminer. Devais-je m'en aller ou bien rester? L'orchestre allait jouer le tout dernier morceau. Peggy, we're supposed to be at City Hall. We're gonna build it right here. Oh, yeah, sure. And give wetsuits to all the visitors? <laughs> no, on the water. Hey, come on. We're talking about building something the size of 64 city blocks. And there's no land left in Montreal. So, get serious. Listen. We'll build islands. How? Dig up Montreal? <laughs> <laughs> They're digging a subway, remember? You take it from there, and you put it here. Places are characters and stories. Buildings are characters and a story. Events are characters. Part 3, Expo 67. The World's Fair held in Montreal in 1967, known as Expo 67, uh, forms some of my earliest childhood memories. I was about three and a half years old at the time, and um, most of what I remember are impressions, colors, sounds, holding a parent's uh, hand. Um, I remember eating like uh, like some kind of beef on a stick at the Jamaican 
pavilion. I remember, I remember the the monorail because this freaked me out. I think it was at the Quebec pavilion that the monorail would go through the pavilion and then it would swing out over the water, over the St. Lawrence and kind of go under a waterfall. And that freaked me out because years later, remember that game uh, Mist? Um, I think the I think the sequel was Riven, and I think in Riven you could ride like a, a monorail. And there's a there's a part in the game where that 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 little ball that rides on a rail goes out over the water. And I remember the first time seeing it, I just like this intense flashback of of Expo. Uh, now today, Expo is considered to be the most successful World's Fair of the 20th century. It broke attendance records and had uh, one of the greatest number of nation participants, uh, 62 nations, of any world exhibition in the world. Um, world exhibition in the world. Yeah. Um, anyway, it, it had tremendous cultural impact on Quebec and Canada and, and put Montreal on the map as a world-class city. The 67 World's Fair was originally awarded to the Soviet Union and was meant to honor the 50th anniversary of the Russian Revolution. Um, now that was a revolution. Um, when uh, the Soviets dropped out, newly elected uh, Mayor Jean Drapeau urged the Canadian government to ask again to host the event to honor Canada's centennial anniversary. They had already been turned down twice. In 1962, the fair governing body, the Bureau International des Exhibitions, changed the location to Montreal. was little time to prepare. Most wanted the fairgrounds to be located in Mount Royal Park, but Drapeau had another idea. Why not construct two man-made islands in the middle of the St. Lawrence River, just beneath the Jacques Cartier Bridge? Most scoffed, top planning committee members resigned, but Drapeau had become accustomed to the doubters, and eventually got his way. 25 million tons of fill was needed to construct the islands, with about a tenth of it coming from the then-under-construction Metro Transit System, another Jean Drapeau project. Now, some stats geek ran a computer program predicting that Expo 67 could not possibly be constructed in time, on April 27th, 1967, the gates opened on time. By its third day, Expo set the single-day attendance record for any World's Fair with 569,000 visitors crowding the island campuses. I, I remember Expo... Uh, uh, for for what every child of the 60s remembers it for, the, the monorail, the geospheric American pavilion with that, uh, had an Apollo space capsule inside. Uh, Disney's Epcot was heavily influenced by Expo. 
There was the amusement park, uh, La Ronde. One uh, child attendee remarked, uh, it was like a dreamland of some sort. To see these things I'd, I'd never seen before. I didn't know about India or Africa or the space exhibit at the U.S. Pavilion. I, I'd never seen anything like that before. So it was like entering a fantasy world. Historian and frequent front-page challenge panelist Pierre Burton attributed the success of Expo to the pronounced and dogged cooperation between Canada's French and English-speaking communities. Quote, The Québécois flair, the English-Canadian pragmatism. Burton later walked back the comment, acknowledging it was an oversimplification of national stereotypes. Expo was not without problems. The Front de Libération Québec, the FLQ, had threatened violence, but in the six months of the fair's operation were largely silent. American President Lyndon B. Johnson's visit was greeted with Vietnam War protesters. Anti-Castro dissidents threatened to blow up the Cuban pavilion. Then Charles de Gaulle showed up. On July 24th, the liberator of France in the Second World War, from the balcony of City Hall, Mère Jean Drapeau at his side, in front of a 100,000 French Canadians, uttered the words that would ignite most of the province into a state of rapture and mortify the rest of Canada. Long live liberated Quebec. Vivre le Québec libre. These words caused an international incident. Prime Minister Lester Pearson condemned de Gaulle's breach of protocol, saying, Canadians do not need to be liberated. But for members of the Quebec sovereignty movement, including future Quebec Premier René Lévesque, de Gaulle's words were viewed as a watershed moment, lending credibility to the notion that Quebec was a distinct culture under the controlling influence of Canada and needed to be set free.
the next evening, Mayor Jean Drapeau, trying to prevent further scandal, made a nationwide broadcast reiterating the province's place in Canada. He had little choice. The federal government had bankrolled a sizable amount to pay for the $283 million price tag for Expo. Many Canadians, English and French, praised Drapeau. His archives, which have recently been made public by the City of Montreal, you can find them by clicking here, are filled with letters, postcards, and telegrams from people all over the world expressing to the mayor their appreciation for trying to bring the Canadian nation together. One of those uh, letters is from Canadian author Hugh McLennan, most famous for writing the novel Two Solitudes, about a young man grappling with his contradictory English and French-Canadian identities. McLennan writes to Drapeau, I think it correct to say that every thinking Anglophone of goodwill hopes that cultural ties with France and Quebec, and thereby with Canada and North America, will not suffer because of what happened last week. As for yourself, Monsieur Le Maire, English Canada is not only grateful to you, it is proud of you. I spoke to many people here in Nova Scotia and heard not a single word of criticism of the people of Quebec beyond, of course, the separatists. Then you spoke. It was as if, when passions rage in a vast crowd... Suddenly a man, renowned for his wisdom and character, rises among them. Some didn't want wisdom and character. Some wanted to let passions rage. Many didn't want slow change. They didn't want small steps. They wanted to leap. Some needed a job now. And they didn't want to wait for it. Some wanted a rapid transition of power. They wanted chaos and anarchy. Some wanted a shock to the system. Next time on Who Killed Teresa. Weak-kneed people who uh, don't like the looks of, uh, of a at, at any family. cost? At any cost? How far would you go with that? How far would you extend that? Well, just watch me. Stick around. We'll have a meeting after the meeting um, to kind of wrap things up here. Lots of interesting stuff still to say. Um, Not the least of which, um, you know, my life has been going this way recently. These weird coincidences. I don't know. I don't know. Is the word kismet? Um, uh, Last night, um, out of the blue... Uh, on Facebook, I get a message pops up, you know, I get, boom, and it's, it's Kim Rosmo, the geographic profiler, Kim Rosmo, and he, he just, he just texts me, John, 
what do you remember about the FLQ crisis? <laughs> and this is unusual. I mean, I've known Kim for um, going on 20 years now, but it's not like we're friends. We've never met, um, uh, but periodically, I'd say once every three months, one of us will message or email one or the other. So for him, and I swear to you, I'm not embellishing here. I'm not cutting around the edges. It wasn't two nights. It was last night, eight o'clock. What do you remember about the FLQ crisis? And I said, well, Kim, you know what? Your timing is great because um, I've been researching it uh, for the last little while. And what do you want? What do you want to know? And um, I'm actually preparing to to do a program on it in the morning. Um, so we talked a little bit. He's he's re- there's a new book out by Darcy Jenish, The Making of the October Crisis, published in 2018. It sounds very interesting. So he's reading that. So he had some some questions and, and basically everything he questioned was what we just covered. He was like, I didn't know that, the, you, you know, the the like the, the October crisis was 1970 where the kidnappings but it, it, like the back end of it extends back at least a decade. And I said, yeah, yeah. You know, it started kind of with the, uh, the demise of Duplessis. And he says, that's what the book says. Today's music, you, you you get the idea, right? It's um, uh, French versions of, of popular, you know, pop songs from the '60s era. Um, I, I don't really know how this phenomenon started. It was very popular, like in the early '60s, um, and I think one day somebody eventually woke up and said, "What the hell? Uh, we want cultural independence, but uh, here we are. We're still like." covering English songs. I mean, what the fuck are we doing? Um, and in, in some of this, it uh, it got really, really, uh, in my mind, kind of abs- absurd. I mean, here's a Norman Knight. <laughs> I don't think his name's Norman Knight with Memphis. Then we have Johnny Fargo with a song I think we all know. I'm sure you know this one. Racism in two languages. It's like racism in stereo. But my absolute favorite is this uh, by Donald Lautrec. Donald Lautrec covering Joe Cocker, covering the Beatles. A cover of a cover. J'aurais voulu oublier cet instant où l'amour a transformé ma vie. Anyway, we're going to go out on a high note. You know, I think it was 1969. Um, someone kind of woke up and wrote a really good song about the era. Um, it's by a fly-by-night group called uh, La Révolution Française. Uh, it's called Québécois, lyrics by François Guy. Um, 
briefly, these don't scan, but what it says is whether it's the Metro or the Expo, Mayor Drapeau or his Expos, don't forget the Citadel, as beautiful as the Eiffel Tower. By becoming more united, we will no longer be a minority. Why must we make war, my brothers? Quebecois, we are Quebecois. Quebec will be proud if it does not give in. If you're blue or if you're red, capitalists or communists, I'm an idealist. I think we should move. That's great stuff. Thanks for tuning in today. Follow us on Twitter at JusticeGuy, J-U-S-T-U-S G-U-Y. I got that right, yeah. Also, um, exclusively for the podcast, at Teresa Lohr, at T-H-E-R-E-S-A-A-L-L-O-R-E. We have a website. Um, it's just TeresaLohr.com, T-H-E-R-E-S-A-A-L-L-O-R-E, point com. A lot of good visuals for today, some videos, stuff like that. Uh, also on uh, Facebook, uh, Teresa Lohr, the podcast. That's it. I'm out. This has been Who Killed Teresa. I'm your host, John Allure. Have yourselves a great, great day. Que ce soit le métro ou l'expo, le merveilleux ou ses expos, n'oubliez pas la citadelle, aussi belle que la tour Eiffel. En devenant tout solidaire, on ne sera plus minoritaire. Pourquoi faut-il se faire la guerre, mes frères? Que l'on soit un bleu ou un rouge, capitaliste ou communiste, moi je suis un idéaliste, je crois qu'il faudrait que ça bouge. En devenant plus solidaire, on ne sera plus minoritaire, pourquoi vous dire se faire la guerre Si
We did it again. Verizon was just named America's most reliable network by Root Metrics for the 16th time in a row, proving once again that nobody builds networks like Verizon builds networks. That's why we're building 5G right. That's why there's only one best network, Verizon. Best and most reliable based on Root Metrics reports from second half 2013 to first half 2021 of three operators on all network types combined, not specific to 5G networks. We did it again. Verizon was just named America's most reliable network by Root Metrics for the 16th time in a row, proving once again that nobody builds networks like Verizon builds networks. That's why we're building 5G right. That's why there's only one best network, Verizon. Best and most reliable based on Root Metrics reports from second half 2013 to first half 2021 of three operators on all network types combined, not specific to 5G networks.